Um, so here is a picture of, it's kind of far away, um, of my family at my daughter Emma's wedding last May 28th. This is my husband and I and our seven children, and five of them are married now, and one, one more is engaged, and my, um, the little one in the short dress on the far left of the, or far right of the picture um, is my youngest. She's a junior at Charlotte Christian, and my husband works there as um, one of the administrators. And here is a picture of my husband and I with our daughter, Hope, who was married last July, um, and her husband, who is a pastor at Sovereign Grace Presbyterian Church um, here in South Park. And then here is a picture of what my children like to affectionately call, and Amelia, you can confirm this, the originals. Um, so it's my husband and I and our seven children and our newest daughter-in-law, Ashton, and they were married last August 26th. Um, and then we also have um, three granddaughters. One lives with Jesus and two live here in Charlotte. And several of you might have cared for these two darling little ones um, in the nursery. And I thank you for caring for our family well by caring for these precious little ones. So that's a little bit about me. So we have been unpacking these two sentences since the beginning of our study of Ruth. And we're going to continue unpacking these two sentences um, as we move through the book of Esther, God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And this morning, we're going to focus on that first sentence, God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So today's outline, I call it the plot thickens because we do see that our protagonist is slighted um, the adversary is revealed, and we, we will see that calamity is determined. So starting with the protagonist being slighted, I'm actually going to read, um, I'm going to back up a little bit into Ashley's lesson from last week. I'm going to read starting in Esther 2, verse 21, just to give us um, a reminder about our protagonist. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When the investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted. So let's stop right there. Mordecai uncovers the assassination plot, and in this... Um, in his telling to Esther that there was an assassination plot, we see that Mordecai is willing to stick his neck out for what he believes to be right. And in this case, he believes um, that loyalty to the king is right. Um, we're told that it's recorded in the king's annals and, um, and that um, the plot is thwarted and that the would-be assassins are executed. 
And the beginning of the next sentence, which is chapter 3, verse 1, might actually lead the reader to believe that Mordecai is about to be rewarded for his loyalty. Um, chapter 3, verse 1 is happens about five years after um, what happened at the end of chapter 2. And it would have been normal for someone who uncovered an assassination plot against the king to be um, to be acknowledged and rewarded. And so the author is kind of setting us up to think, okay, Mordecai is going to be rewarded. And yet instead, we see that another name is inserted right where we might think Mordecai's name should be. So let's go back and read that again. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So our adversary is revealed. Let me finish reading through verse 6. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So we're told who our adversary is. First, we're, um, we're told who his ancestor is, the Agagite. The biblical authors are cleverly bringing to the reader's mind the ancient feud between Haman's people and Mordecai's by mentioning their ancestors. Because if you look over in Esther 2 verse 5, when we're introduced to Mordecai, we're told that there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shammai. And that um, phrase, descendant of Kish and Shammai, should be a little bell that goes off in the reader's mind saying, ding, ding, ding. I know a Kish and Shammai. Kish and Shammai were relatives of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And so by connecting Mordecai to King Saul and connecting Haman to Agag, um, we are reminded that in 1 uh, Samuel 15, we're told of a, of a battle that happens between King Saul and the Amalekites. But not only was there a battle between King Saul and King Agag, um, we're told earlier in the Hebrew scriptures that this feud went w um, much further back. Um, we see in Exodus 17 that as the people of Israel come out of Egypt, as Moses leads them out of Egypt, the Amalekites, who King Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the Amalekites were the very first people group to ever attack and try to destroy the people of Israel. 
So this animosity that we're seeing played out between Haman and Mordecai is centuries old at this point. We're also given a little bit of understanding about who um, Haman is. We see glimpses of his character um, in these verses. We see that just like Xerxes, Haman becomes enraged when he does not get his way. Here we see the absurdity of wickedness again. It's not enough to take out just Mordecai. No, no, no. Haman's rage propels him forward in his malicious thinking and compels him to seek the death of an entire people group because he's ticked off at one man. Like Xerxes, Haman sets out to make many people pay for the offense of one. But here is the irony. Haman's desire to take out the entire people group ultimately results in Mordecai's life being spared. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We see next that the calamity is determined. If you turn with me to verse 7, and I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter just to catch us up to speed. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by remo removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to have a drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. So with the poor, or the Purim, um, 
also known as dice. This introduces the element of destiny into the story. And by using Purim, Haman um, would have attributed that, that particular death date decision, he would have attributed it either to chance or to his gods. However, we can be certain that, that, it, that it was Yahweh who ordered the selection of the particular date. How can we be sure of that? Well, if we look at Proverbs 16.33, we're told we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall, which again points to God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So manipulation. Haman shows that he is a magnificent manipulator, mastering um, at, at manipulation. He starts his argument by othering the Jews, by making them as un-Persian as possible. And then he outright lies, and Haman takes advantage of Xerxes' fear of revolt. Because by this point in Xerxes' reign, he has already put down um, revolts in Egypt and twice in Babylon. So Haman saying that the Jews don't obey the king's law was the winning card in Haman's hand. He rightly assumed that Xerxes would do anything to avoid revolt, revolt and to proclaim his might. Haman was manipulative and driven by pride. He was driven by rage and a need for revenge. This is the man, this man that lies and manipulates and signs the death warrant for an entire people group. This is the man the king has decided to honor, not the one who had uncovered and thwarted an assassination attempt. I can't help but wonder if Mordecai would have agreed with the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? And Jeremiah is not the only one to say this in the Hebrew scriptures. Time after time, we see that same question in the Psalms. Psalmist after psalmist asks the question, why are the wicked prosperous? It had to have set, sit rather heavily on Mordecai as he considered this one who was so deceitful and so full of manipulation to be honored above him. God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So even as Mordecai probably stewed with that confusion, we can know that God was being purposeful and he continued to be the hero of Mordecai's story. Annihilation. Xerxes seems, it seems that he can't be bothered with even finding out who these people are that he's just signed the death warrant for. The death date is set as casually as as if Xerxes and Haman are thinking about what snack to eat next. And the chapter finishes with Haman and Xerxes blithely having a drink while the city and the empire are thrown into confusion. 
Ironically, the death date is sent out on the eve of Passover. Highlighting the question, will God, who delivered the people of Israel on the first Passover, the God who covenanted himself to the people of Israel, would he still deliver his people even when they are in exile for the very reason that they have broken his covenant? It's kind of a dangling question, isn't it? The people of Israel were thrown into despair. And at this point in our story, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. No understanding how they might be rescued or even belief that they could be rescued. Let's sit with that for a minute. Let's consider the hopelessness that these communities must have felt even as they considered the question, Yahweh, will you save us? Maybe this question hits a tender spot for you. Maybe you are asking yourself that question. Will this God bring salvation, rescue, deliverance? Karen Jobes, an author and theologian, um, the author of a wonderful commentary on the book of Esther, um, says this, we, can't, we cannot see the end of things from the middle, so we must walk by faith and not by sight. Middle places, if you had a chance to listen to the sermon from this past Sunday, Chris Payne spoke about middle places himself. I wonder if maybe you are in a middle place right now. Are you waiting for test results? Navigating a time of treatment? Slogging through a difficult season in your marriage or with a child? Has work not quite been what it's all cracked up to be for you? Has life taken a turn that you didn't expect? I feel like I have had a lot of middle places lately. Some life-altering ones, like when we received a tragic diagnosis for our precious granddaughter, Zoe Gale, and waited for her birth six weeks later. It felt like a middle place as we loved her when she was born alive and for her 18 hours before she left to be with Jesus. It was a middle place as I stood in horror and watched my son and daughter-in-law's house burn down. We continued in middle places as we grieved and felt foggy and got angry and felt numb. But I have also just in the last couple of weeks had some middle places that although not life-altering, they definitely thrust me into hours of fear hours of wondering how the Lord Jesus would provide rescue in that particular situation. And one of those came after sharing what I was certain the Holy Spirit had prompted me to share in a particular situation. One of the women I was talking with later emailed me and questioned my intent and shared that she was very hurt by what I said. So we settled on a time that we could get together to discuss this, although because I was out of town, the conversation was going to have to wait a week. And that seemed a long way off to me. 
The waiting felt heavy and I felt unable to focus my heart and mind on trusting the Lord. Maybe you are like me in your middle places. They seem heavy and dark and filled with temptation to fear. In the middle places, I often feel distracted by the thing that seems to be hanging over my head like a cloud following me around. In this particular middle space, I asked for help. I reached out to a friend and shared a little of the situation and asked her to pray for me. I needed someone to share my burden because I wasn't able to bear it myself. It was only as I was preparing for this lesson that I saw a connection between my middle place and the age-old feud between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. There is a scene from the very beginning of that feud that gives us a picture of what the middle place battle could look like. If you can, turn with me to Exodus 17. I'm going to read starting in verse 10. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired that he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands, so his hands held steady steady until sunset. Moses was unable to bear the burden of interceding for his people on his own. The middle place between the beginning of the battle and the victory that God would bring was difficult. It was beyond what Moses could experience on his own. But when Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses, together they were able to continue the prayer. The battle was not immediately over. In fact, it continued to rage for some time. But Moses was reminded that he was not alone in that intercession. As we consider this middle place in Esther at the end of chapter three, let's not forget that just like the people in Esther three, the people of God who were given a death decree and didn't know whether there would be rescue Let's not forget that there are many places in this world right now where people are experiencing that same horror. For the people of God, for us in this room, for all who know Jesus as the ultimate salvation, we can know that he is with us in these moments of darkness, in the middle places where we can't see the end. He often shows us that he is with us through giving us someone like Aaron and her for Moses, someone who can lift your arms when there is no strength left, someone like my friend who prayed for me for that week of waiting before that difficult conversation, someone 
like our church family, who came around my family last year as we celebrated three weddings, an engagement, the birth of two granddaughters, the loss of a home, and watching one granddaughter leave to be with Jesus. The agitation, the horror, the grief, the fear, the heartache is not removed when someone comes around us in the waiting. The burden is shared, and there is such a comfort in the sharing, even as we wait through these middle places. In our story, the people of God at the end of chapter three are waiting, and they don't yet know if they will be rescued. These are agonizing days for them. But we know that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. So hold tight to his promises. Maybe find an Aaron and a her to partner with you in prayer and wait to see the redemption of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are with us, that your name is Emmanuel, God with us, and that you reveal that withness to us through your people. So give us boldness to ask for that help and give us humility to receive that help and cause our hearts and minds to be turned once again to you, God with us, even in our middle places when we can't see the end. I thank you that we can know that you see the end and that you are purposefully writing our story. And most importantly, that you are the hero of that story. In Jesus' name, amen.